Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 3. Judges, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles provided for you in the pew rack right in front of you there. Page 202. Page 202 is where we are in those, those, uh, those Bibles. If you're turning there, you're going to pass some sections of Scripture that some might call boring. You read about rings and poles and instructions for ceremonial cleansing and different stuff that, that for modern readers might, might seem a bit distant and uh, odd. But I can promise you one thing. The book of Judges is a lot of stuff, but one thing it is not is boring. It is one of the more, if you will, I dare say, entertaining books of the Bible uh, that would probably be rated R, and I think you'll see why as we make our way through this for all the violence and gore and other things that go on in the book. But as we come to it, I think what, what we need to remember is that God does not give the Bible to entertain us. But he gives it to instruct us about very real realities in a very real world in which we live. And uh, we will see that this morning as we come in the book of Judges chapter 3. Just to catch you up on where we are in, in the story, we have come to the land of Canaan under Joshua. This God-ordained conquest in which divine judgment is falling on the inhabitants of the land. And God is giving the land to Israel. This land that God promised to Abraham, He is giving it to them under Joshua. And the, the generations after are supposed to uh, complete the conquest and settle in the land and worship God and know His blessing. But as we watch things unfold in the book of Judges, we find, as we talked about last week, cycles where we see that in chapters 3 through 16, it was described in chapter 2, but in chapters 3 through 16, we're going to see 12 judges that God is going to raise up that fit into seven cycles in which we see Israel rebel against the good God who brought them into the land. God will respond by raising up an enemy. Israel will then cry out for, for mercy or just cry out because they don't like getting whomped on. And then God, in His compassion and mercy, will raise up a judge to deliver them. And uh, these judges are, are, are well known. Um, three of the, the twelve, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, wind up in Hebrews chapter 11, in what some call the, the Hall of Faith. And as we watch these, these heroes, if you will, uh, that God uses here in the book of Judges, we, we find that none of them are perfect. Uh, they, are, they are all flawed. They begin, out, they begin better, and they end up really bad. Um, the stronger they become, we see the weaker they were, and the more worthless, really, in one sense, they are. There's really a downward spiral all the way through, through the book. But this morning, we're going to begin by looking at the first three judges. So, chapter 3, verse 7, down through, through 31, and and as we look at these first three judges, we're going we're to have a big idea in mind, and this is it. That God uses weak people to accomplish great purposes, so that He receives all glory and His enemies receive great shame. I'll say that again. God uses weak people to accomplish great purposes, so that he receives all glory and his enemies receive great shame. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to just we're going to walk through each of these three judges and, and and do some observing as to what we see in their life, and then we'll conclude with with some things that we ought to consider uh, from the lessons that we we see played out before us. So let's begin here with Othniel, the first judge in Judges chapter three, verses seven down through eleven. Verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Therefore, verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan eight years. Verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. 
The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rithaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And he handed, and, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, what we see here in verses 7 through 11 in the story of Othniel is, is basically the pattern that the Lord recorded for us back in, in chapter 2. It begins with Israel rebelling against God. Look there at verse 7 again. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord and they served idols. So Israel does evil and God sees from heaven. This is one of the things you notice all the way through the book of Judges is that their sin, whether private or public, whether on high places or in hidden places, is done always in the sight of the Lord. Which should remind us that we we must never think that God is unaware of your sin. See, one of the problems that comes with God being a merciful God is that sometimes we will sin and there's no immediate consequences. We don't see God just smack us from heaven and we think, oh, well then God must not see or God must not care. We confuse His mercy and His patience for indifference and apathy. The Bible will, will not allow that to, to go on very long. The Bible wants us to know that, that you may indeed be a master at hiding, but God is a master at finding. Hebrews 4.13 says it this way, that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Jesus said in Luke 18, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So, Israel, as they were sinning here, that was the day that they should have seen God's patience and mercy and led them to repentance, but they did not. Rather, they persisted in their unfaithfulness. So, verse 8, God raises up an enemy. The anger of the Lord was kindled, and He sold them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia. So God is a loving God with a faithful, jealous love. He is grieved by his unfaithful bride, and since she will not remain at home with him, he lets her go into the arms of another lover. And Israel becomes slaves to King Cushan. Now, his name here is interesting. Cushan Rishathaim. Cushan Rishathaim means double wickedness. He's the king of double wickedness. Living Bible, he's a bad dude. And what God says, it says, you like other gods? Well, go serve them. You like other lovers? Go love them. Tell me how double wickedness guy treats you. For eight years. Eight years. Think about that. That's a long time. Eight years, 2009. Eight years. He leaves them under this oppression of the king of double wickedness. One of the things you've got to know about the Lord is that He loves His people enough to not allow them to remain comfortable in their sin. If patience will not lead them to repentance then He will patiently allow them to know suffering through discipline. And sometimes God knows that really the only way to get their attention is to give them a big dose of what they think that they want. We could go around in this room right now and testify of ways that God said, you want idols? Here's idols. And then God forces us to drink them for a few years or months or however long it went. I mean, how many of you, that's part of your story, that God lets you have a bit of your sin? And through that, He showed you that, you know what? Sin's not all it cracked up to be. I know that's a big part of my story, that God gave me the life that I thought I wanted and how empty it was. Well, Israel, uh, under the oppression, they cry out to God, and God in His mercy raises up a judge. Verse 9, but when the people cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. 
So they cried out to the Lord, and we're unable to tell here whether this is um, you know, sorrow over their sin or just grief of their consequences. We don't see any major words about repentance here. But what we do see is that God is merciful and He is patient and he is, he is loving and the depths of His love are indeed untouchable because He decides to move and to give mercy. And He raises up here the first judge, Othniel. Now, does anybody have a note there in your Bible as to what Othniel means? His name means the Lion of God. That's a cool name. Lion of God. And does anybody know what tribe he's from? The tribe of Judah. Just tuck that away for later. He's the younger brother of Caleb. Now, Caleb was a legend uh, in Israel. He and Joshua had come out of Egypt and they had spied out the land of Canaan, and they stood in faith while the other ten spies cowered um, and, and said, there's giants in the land there at Kadesh Barnea back in, in the book of Numbers. Well, Othniel here is Caleb's younger brother. But he's famous for his own act of faith. You remember back in Judges chapter 1? He's the one that led Judah against the city of Debir, and he married Aksah, Right? So he's a war hero from Judah. And though he's got some great war experience, the years have rolled on here. So this is a bit, this is a bit later on in the story, which means that Othniel, though he's got a great resume, he's no spring chicken. He's, he's a bit older here in the story, which I just want to point out how often God will choose people who the world might might deem as expired to use greatly. Think about Noah. He was real old when God asked him to build an ark. Abraham, old. Moses, old. Othniel here, old. But regardless of his uh, chronological frailty, if you will, verse 10 says, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He wants to be really clear here that what's about to happen is because of what God is is doing. What makes him able to deliver Israel is not his military pedigree, but the fact that the Holy Spirit came upon him and empowered him and gave him wisdom and used him. And that the Lord gave King Kushan into his hand. God wants to be really clear when we read the Bible here that we are not permitted to miss this. It was God who gave Israel over to their enemies, and it was God who raised up a deliverer. And it was God who empowered the deliverer, and it was God who handed the enemy back over to be conquered. God is running the show. This, God wants that to be crystal clear, and that's, that's important because our natural reading is not to see that. Um, one of our members put me onto a little podcast called uh, Hardcore History which is done by this, this brilliant guy who's, who's a, a secular historian um, who, who basically walks through all sorts of different things in history. But um, podcasts 56 through 59 are all about ancient civilizations. The, the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, Rome, all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a great and very long podcast. So listen on one and a half speed, it goes quicker. But it's still good. But anyway, as he reads through, he reads Bible accounts as well. And he says, of course, we don't believe this is actually true, but just listen. And uh, he, he weaves all these things together. And it's, it's amazing because he'll read this thing from the Bible. And I'm like, yes, that's awesome. And he goes, now that's cool, but I don't believe it a bit. And then he, he just goes on with this, this, this politicized, you know, humanistic lens in which he, he reads everything. And that's the natural lens. But God wants all of us, as we read this, to know that this is, God is the sovereign orchestrator of history. He is the one who raises up, and he is the one who puts down. Well, Othniel here was an old man, and he had walked with God for many years. Physically, he may not have been what he used to be, but God empowered him, and he saved Israel, and the land had rest for 40 years. That that rest is probably the same thing back in Joshua 11, rest from war. So peace prevailed for four decades. No attacks, no oppression, no slavery. But verse 11, 
Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And with his, with his death, so died the repentance and the peace that it brought. Which brings us to the second judge and the second cycle in the book of Judges. Ehud. This is the one that people who draw story Bibles dream of. Picture Bibles, that is. Verse 12, here we go. Ehud. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. So the cycle begins again. Israel rebels against God. Verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the people repented of their repentance. Now we don't know the nature of their sin this time, but all we know is that God sees it and He acts in light of it. And God, again, raises up an enemy. So they sin, and the Lord now removes His hand of protection, and He once again extends His hand of discipline, and He empowers here the king of Moab, a guy named Eglon. And what Eglon's first order of business is, is he gets this idea to go against Israel, which the Lord allows to come, is that he makes an alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Now, for those of you who are familiar with kind of your Old Testament, you know that the Moabites and the Ammonites, these are descendants of the ancestral relationship that Lot had with his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah. These are longtime rivals of, of Israel. These were longtime enemies of the people of God. And then you've got the Amalekites. These are the descendants of Esau. Once again, longtime enemies of the people of Israel. These Amalekites are the same guys. You remember back, I believe it's the book of Numbers, where Moses is up on the hill and he holds up the staff, and Israel is beating this. Uh, in, in war, the Amalekites and Aaron and Hur holding up his, his arms. Well, that's this crew. They're, they're back again. Now, it's interesting geographically because the Ammonites live to the north, the Moabites live to the east, and the Amalekites live to the south. So God had once surrounded his people with peace, a protecting peace, but now he surrounds Israel with with oppressive plunderers who are going to come against her. And they took possession of the city of the Palms. Does anybody know what the city of the Palms was? This is not in Florida. This is somewhere else. Not California. It's Jericho. It's Jericho. This is known also as the city of the Palms. Now, what's, what was Jericho famous for? It's the first city of the conquest. The first city of the conquest was that Israel took Jericho and then they go into the land that God gave them. Well, this, their sin has now reversed the conquest, as it were. Israel had God fighting for them, but now God is fighting against them. And if God is against you, who can be for you? So the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. God gave Israel over to the people that he had once delivered them from. And they knew once again the oppression and the affliction of a master who was very unlike Yahweh. But once again, God in his mercy, verse 15, raises up a judge to deliver them. Verse 15. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So God in his mercy here raises up an unlikely savior for his people. And we notice a couple things about him. First thing we notice here is that he is a left-handed man. Now this is important because in the Hebrew, there's a word that you can, there's a normal word that you use for the left hand. This is not that word. This is a word that literally says, one who was bound in the right hand. 
the way I take that, and, and several other people take it, is that his right hand was bound. It was withered. He was disabled. He, he's handicapped here. His right hand is bound up. He can't use it. It's, it's, it's withered. Now, that goes hand in hand with his, his tribe. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Does anybody know what the Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. So he's disabled in his right hand, but that's okay because God is the strength of his hand here. And you notice also what he does. He is, um, yeah, he, he, he's, the people send tribute by him to Eglon. So he's a bit of a, a carrier. He's a, he's a delivery boy. He's going to lead these, this crew that's going to roll up to the king of Eglon and bring tribute, which would have been some sort of, of tax or um, gift showing submission. So um, in, in Islam, um, I mean, you'll see this recently in the, in the news, ISIS will, will tell Christians you'll either convert or you'll die or you'll move or you'll pay the tax. Well, it's that same sort of tribute that you have to pay here to, to Eglon, the king of Moab. And what you've got here is you've got Ehud, who is the, he's the messenger who's leading this group that's bringing this, this, this tribute. Probably money and produce and maybe some cattle and this kind of stuff. Now, what's unique here in God's wisdom is Ehud's disability gives him a bit of an unsuspecting presence. So he rolls up in his chariot and he parks in the handicapped parking spot. And he's going to hop out and he's got his one hand withered up and everybody else is grabbing the stuff and he's, he's wandering in. He is, he's unsuspecting here. And his weakness likely makes him overlooked as a threat. And maybe overlooked in, in life as, as well. But he's going to be used by God greatly here. Verse 16. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Verse 18. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king, and he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. Now, this story is about to get pretty entertaining. And what God does, he seems to slow things down, and he wants us to take in all of the details, and God stacks up the details here for us. So he, first, he, notice something about Ehud here. He's, he's shrewd. He makes this double-edged sword that's going to be about 15 to 18 inches in length, and he straps it to his right thigh, not his left thigh. Remember, he's left-handed, so that would have been easy access on the left side, but he puts it on his, his right inner thigh here under his cloak. So when he, when he rolls in, Eglon's bodyguard sees he's handicapped, and if he checks him, he's not going to check on his right side because he can't do anything with his right side. He's just going to pat down his left side. He's a smart critter here. Well, then you've got Eglon. Eglon, it says, was a very fat man. The Bible wants to be really clear about this part of this guy. And it's important. Why? Because fatness in the Old Testament is a sign of blessing. Because you're free to feast and indulge on the abundance of goodness that is before you. How has, how has this king of Moab gotten so fat? Because he's been feasting on God's people for all these years. They've been bringing tribute to him time in and time out and all this food and all this produce and they just, he's been just sucking it down. All this that should have been Israel, this, this king of the Moabites was just consuming and he sits there as a fat man. Now, after Ehud and his attendants hand over the tribute to the king, he turns back. Now, do you notice where, where does he do this? This is all very important. Where does he turn back to go back to talk to the king? What's it say there? 
Did you catch it? Verse 19. He turned back at the idols near Gilgal. Now, Gilgal, if you're, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, it's the place right before Jericho. So before Israel goes in to take out Jericho, God says, we've got some business to deal with. Because Israel, you'd had this whole generation that's wandering in the wilderness, and they had not done something. What had they not done? They had not been circumcised, which was the mark of the covenant. So God makes them repent at Gilgal, where there they're going to renew the covenant with God before they go back in and take Jericho. So you've got this scene here where at Jericho, he turns back and he's about to take back Jericho. He turns back at Gilgal here to take back Jericho. It's all very poetic. You're supposed to feel the poeticness which God is working here. There's all sorts of ironies that an, uh, an Israelite or someone who's familiar with their Old Testament would read and see. Well, also notice here about the idols. So Eglon, he sets up these idols everywhere. Now, why would a king set up idols everywhere? Because remember, this is not his city. They took over the city. It used to be Israel's city, so they put gods up everywhere saying what? Our gods whooped your gods. Your god was pretty weak. That's why we came and took you. Remember that day some 18 years ago? Whooped you. Look at all of our gods. The gods of the Moabites look down upon puny Israel as they walk in to bring tribute to the king who oppresses them. Not for long. So Ehud here comes back to Eglon and he says to him, I have a secret message for you. So Eglon sends out his security detail, right? He says, all right, everybody out. I want to hear this. So you have Ehud versus Eglon, which is kind of a prequel to David and Goliath, okay? So you've got, you've got this, this weak underdog here sitting before or standing before this imposing gluttonous king. Verse 20. So Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. So this would have been like an outdoor porch. So it's super hot there, right? And, but you've got this outdoor porch upstairs, like oftentimes kings would have, that you would go and you could get a cool breeze. And you'll notice elsewhere, or later on in the text, that apparently he had an adjacent bathroom to it. So this is, this is the place where he would just go lounge. It's his private quarters. Okay, so he's, he's up there literally chilling as it's hot, okay? And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. So he would have struggled to get up. Probably some sort of superstitious reverence here for a message from the gods. And verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh that everybody overlooked and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt, verse 22, also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Verse 23. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. So the door's locked. Smells bad. Verse 25, they waited till they were embarrassed. Waiting for the king. But when he had still not opened the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and they opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed by the idols and escaped to Syria. Listen, y'all, that is so poetic. God uses weak people to accomplish great purposes so that he receives all the glory and his enemies receive great shame. You've got this handicapped messenger sticking his dagger into the bowels of the fattened king who's fat because he's been feasting on Israel's goodness, and then he leaves him laying there in a pile of his own mess while he skips past these useless idols which can't do anything except sit there and do nothing. It's almost like all the angels are like, I love this view. You know, they're like, how does he do it all the time? 
They just marvel. Eglon was big, but God was bigger. And he used this weak man to prove it. Verse 27. When he arrived, he... This is, uh, this is uh, Ehud. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, and they seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, and not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So... The, the, the poetic justice which God moves here is intended to bring great encouragement to Israel. It's like God says, I see every bit of it. I saw every bite that he took on your dime. I saw every time that you had to walk by and see one of those stupid idols staring at you in the face. I saw it. I saw every single time that these, these Moabites with all their strength mocked that handicapped guy who walked in to bring the tribute. I saw every single bit of it, and there's a day coming when God will bring poetic justice on his enemies and the enemies of his people. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day where there is great injustice, and and we often wonder, does God see? Does God care? Will there ever be a day when every wrong will be made right? And texts like this are intended to call the heart to, com- to be comforted and to rest and to know that God sees it all. And the way, listen, this is so important. This is why God tells his people in Romans chapter 12 to leave justice to the wrath of God. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Because God, whatever twisted way you can come up with to get your enemies back, God says, whoa, 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 sit down, you're an amateur, watch this. God, he will show himself, the Bible says, twisted to those who deal with him twistedly. God will bring poetic justice on the enemies of his people and on all those who oppress and will not repent and bow before him. This is our great comfort. Well, after him comes another guy, our third judge a guy named Shamgar. Verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, we don't know much about him, except that he has, aside from Jesus, I think the most awesome name in the Bible. Now, listen, just a, just a pastoral word here. With all the kids that are around here, can somebody please name their kid Shamgar, Okay. I mean, what a great name, Shamgar. Maybe not. I just love it, okay? All we see here about Shamgar is that he saved Israel, okay? He saves Israel. But he wants to be, what God wants us to see is, is what he used to do it. He used an ox goad. Now, an ox, ox goad is about an eight-foot-long, basically, shepherd stick, that oftentimes would be sharpened on the end. Sometimes there would be an, an iron or, or, or metal thing on the end that you would use to, to, you know, to poke whatever your animal, here an ox, evidently. Um, so that makes Shamgar, if he's got an ox goad, he's a what? He's some sort of shepherd or cowboy. Right? So he's, he's some, sort of, some sort of cowboy. And God raises up. I mean, I've been living in Texas long enough. This is not that unbelievable when you see some crazy cowboy with a stick with a point on it. Some stuff can happen. Well, that's what you've got here. You've got Sham, Shamgar, this, this cowboy, who goes into battle against the Philistines with a stick, which once again echoes, do you remember Goliath and the Philistine? Remember the Philistine, Goliath? Do you remember what he said to David? You think I'm a dog that you're going to come at me with a stick? Well, this is not the first time that God's used that trick. 
And I think it's just important just to notice here how God seems to love to use unusual weapons to bring down his enemies. This is, this is not your normal type stuff, right? So you've got Ehud's um, dagger. You've got Shamgar's ox goat here. Uh, next week or the week after, John's going to show you ja- Jael's milk. Then you're going to see the hammer. So he's gonna, she's going to use a cup, of, a cup of milk for night-night and then a, a hammer to, to finish them off. You're going to have Gideon's horns and his flashlights. You're going to have a woman using this old lady's going to push a millstone off the top and crush some rebel's head. You're going to have Samson with a, a donkey's jaw. God just uses weird stuff to save his people. It's like God saying, what's the weirdest thing I could come up with to make sure that everybody knows that I'm the only one who's going to get glory on this deal? Ah, I know what I'll do. I'll do, I'll do an ox code. That's what I'll do. Well, so that reminded me, by the way, I heard this week about a testimony of a guy who was at an ACDC concert. And while they were singing Highway to Hell, he's singing along, and then all of a sudden, it's like everything slows down, and he gets slow motion, and he's looking around at all these people celebrating that they're on the highway to hell. And it hits him that if that's true, that's the most terrifying thing that could ever happen. And right there, he said the gospel came back to mind and he got converted at an ACDC concert. So the angels are just like, oh, that gum, he's amazing. <laughs> like, how does he do that all the time? I, I think history and eternity is just going to be one highlight reel after another of God's just amazing Amazing mercies put on display in ways that you'll never get bored in heaven. Celebrating the way that he saves people, whether it be at a young age or on their deathbed, and everything in between through the most, yeah, most <laughs> interesting, amusing, and glorious ways. So in Judges 3, we find this unlikely trio of saviors. An old guy, a disabled guy, and a cowboy or a shepherd, okay? Now, as we, as we read this, we're not supposed to just read that and be like, all right, that's a cool story. Thanks, that was better than Leviticus or whatever else you could have given us this morning. No, Romans 15 tells us something very important. Romans 15.4 says this, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So stories like this of these, these three guys are intended to, to instruct us, to stir in our hearts a hope that we have for God and what he does. So in our last couple of minutes together, I just want to highlight some things that we ought to consider from the people who are involved here. First thing I want us to do is I want us to consider Israel. Consider Israel in all of this. Now, I think all of us are probably guilty of this, at least I am, and this just, I think, shows my pride. But as we, as we read biblical accounts, we need to be really careful because we, are, we most normally, when we read biblical accounts, we somehow find ourselves identifying with the heroes of the story. Do you do that? How many of you, you kind of do that? You're like, if I was David, you know, and you relive it, and everybody's like, you're the man, you're awesome, you know? Maybe it's just me. I do that in, in, in ways that are revealing, evidently. But um, we do that. We most naturally identify with the heroes of the story. But that's not where we should begin. Because we aren't first David who defeats Goliath. We're Israel who's over there cowering in fear behind the lines, and we need a Savior to go out before us and to slay Goliath. That's who we are. We're the leper that Jesus reaches down to heal. We're Lazarus in the tomb who needs Jesus to call us by name so that we come out alive. And as we read these stories, we, what we learn from, I mean, we will learn from Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, but before we do, we ought to see ourselves as the straying, compromising, mercy-needing people of Israel. We are most like them in the story, which I think helps us as we learn how to read our Old Testament. Rather than read through the Old Testament and say, 
man, Israel, they're so stupid. How'd they do that? What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to read the Old Testament, and you're supposed to say, man, Israel, so stupid. And why am I so much exactly like them? That's what it's intended to do. We're supposed to see ourselves in the story, yes, but not as the heroes, but as the ones who need a hero, as the ones who need a deliverer to come and to rescue. So one of the things that you might want to do as you're reading through the Old Testament and really any portion of the Bible is is to ask God to help you to see yourself for who you really are apart from Him. Ask God to give you grace to humble you. So we should consider Israel and see that we're actually them, the straying, compromising, unfaithful ones. But I do think it's also a fair and right and good application to consider the judges as well. So as we read these stories, we must see these heroes as merely, I mean, they're merely humans whom God mercifully used. Right? I mean, we've already highlighted all of their weaknesses, and as we go through judges and we see the more naturally and physically gifted a judge is, the worse they end up being and the more useless they end up being. So, so as with every other supposed hero of the Bible, we need to remember that, that apart from Jesus, they're really just like you and me. Jesus is like us and that he's fully human, but he's fully God and none of us have that going on. Now, these, these heroes that we've seen here, they have all sorts of reasons why God should not have used them. But this is when we read it, we should remember that God loves to use weak people for his purposes. We're, we're not supposed to watch the judges and think, oh, I could never be like that. Rather, what we're supposed to do, after we realize that we're Israel and we need a Savior, we should say, God, would you strengthen me as you strengthen them? They needed courage. Will you give me courage? They needed wisdom. Will you give me wisdom? They needed, they needed the Holy Spirit to overshadow their weaknesses and to give them strength that they did not possess naturally. God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me because I need your strength to do whatever you call me to do. So I don't want us to overcorrect and to say that there's no lessons for us here in, in the Judges. Because we remember that God loves to use what appears to be weak weapons to shame his enemies and to glorify his name. I mean, again, Ehud used this, this, this mini handmade dagger to take down a great king. Shamgar used this shepherd's stick to strike down 600 Philistines. So as we talked about last week, the parallel for us is not to go and conquest nations. We don't go with a physical sword, but we go with the sword of the Spirit, and we go to make disciples. If you want to learn more about that, you can listen to last week's sermons. But as we go, we go in the same posture of these judges. We we don't go in our own wisdom, but rather we go proclaiming what God says is wise, which is the gospel. The good news that... (laughs) That Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead and that anybody who will turn from their sin and trust in him can have their sins forgiven. That message that you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is absolute foolishness to the world. But that's the message that God tells us to take. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1? The word of the cross, the idea that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead, and the only way to be made right with him is to repent of your sins and believe in him. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. I mean, how many of you, before you were a Christian, you heard the gospel and you thought, that's stupid. So is I the only non-Christian? Okay, so a lot of people think that, okay? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, God saves people through one way, and that is through Christ alone. And he does it in such a way that there's no way that anybody can strut into heaven. There's nobody who's going to walk in and be, look, I crushed it in life. Aren't you glad I'm here, God? Nobody can do that. 
And God makes sure of that by giving the only way, which is through a bloody cross of a crucified Jewish man who was also God, who was buried and laid dead for three days and then rose again. That you can't bring anything to satisfy God except drop everything and say, He's all I have. Only God gets glory in that. And that's what He's doing here. God has rigged it. He sets things up in such a way that his people will have no doubt who is strong and who is wise and who is worthy of honor. It is him and him alone. This, by the way, before we move on to the the last thing to consider, this is one of the reasons I want to to encourage you to be active in being a Christian. It seems silly, but what I mean by that is is be active in helping people who don't follow Jesus follow Jesus. And be active in helping people who do follow Jesus help, uh, help them follow Jesus better. Evangelism and discipleship. Because there's something that happens as you are actively saying, God, I don't know what to say to this person. God, I don't know how to answer their question. God, I'm scared to death of what they're going to think of me. God, I'm scared to death that I'm just going to send, I'm going to say the wrong thing and I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to pull a 700 club and it's going to go terrible, Lord. Please help me. Like, I don't know what to do. That posture all the time does extraordinary things for your soul. Because it keeps you humble and it keeps the power of God on the forefront of your mind all the time. And that, so anybody who's doing that will never say that the Christian life is boring. Anybody who ever says the Christian life's kind of boring is just confessing that they're not following Jesus very well. Because if you're following Jesus and you're helping other people follow Jesus, which if you're not helping other people follow Jesus, I'm not sure what you mean when you say you're following Jesus. Like this is what it means to follow him. As we do this, God's power shows up in a way that is really unparalleled. That's my commendation to consider the judges. Embrace whatever your weakness is and know that God very often wants to put that on blast in a good way to highlight it so that he can use you. Which brings us finally to the last thing to consider. Consider the one the judges point to. Consider the one that the judges point to. In John chapter 5, 39, Jesus said, The Scriptures bear witness about me. Colossians 1 says, The whole Old Testament is a shadow of the good things to come. Jesus is the greater judge. As with the rest of the Old Testament, these judges and what God does in and through them are intended to reveal reveal how God saves people. I mean, think about about Othniel. God handed his sinning people over to a guy who is known as doubly evil one. And they were held captive by his will. But then God, moved by mercy, raised up a human savior known as the Lion of God from the tribe of Judah, filled with the Holy Spirit. He appeared weak to all, but... He came and overpowered the evil one to set his people free and bring them into a time of peaceful rest. Does that sound familiar? It's the story of Jesus. Or you look at Ehud. The people of God sin, and rather than enjoying the land that God has given them, they are are kicked out of Eden, and they are now surrounded by evil. And they're surrounded by oppressors. But then God, in his mercy, raised up an unsuspecting Savior, who, as Isaiah would say, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There's no way we would have expected it. But then he slayed the wicked king and escaped certain death. And then, at the sound of the trumpet, he rallies the people of God who follow his lead as he descends to subdue the enemy and bring the people into the rest that they never would have had apart from his intervention. That's Ehud. And then you've got Shamgar. Certainly don't have much to work with here, but we do see the most basic element of every Old Testament story, that God provides a Savior for his people. And he must do this, because no matter how well these many saviors do, they can never be our ultimate hope, because they're always dying off. These judges will only go downhill. 
Now, Deborah, she's pretty awesome. You'll see that. But then after that, it's basically a dumpster fire in Israel. It just goes bad with these leaders. And then come the kings. And how do they do? Well, your first king throws spears at his servants' heads and consults witches. Your second one is adulterer and a murderer. The third is an idolater and a wife collector. And then it gets bad, right? I mean, you get these kings who institute immorality. They offer their children as burnt offerings to idols. The kingdom gets divided. And by the end of the Old Testament, you find that the law is good and that God is good, but that his people aren't. The priests fail. The parents fail. The judges fail. The kings fail. So what in the world is next? The only thing that we could hope for is that that God would just become a man and come do it for us. And that's exactly what he does. Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning he didn't hold on to his rights as God. But he emptied himself. Not that he stopped being God, but he surrendered his rights as God by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, the God-man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. (laughs) History is moving to a moment where everything that the judges pictured will come to pass. All those who loved Jesus will bow to Him in adoration, and all those who were enemies of Jesus will bow under His condemnation. They who trusted in their own wisdom and dismissed His foolish cross and His silly gospel and His weak way of faith will be put to shame. But those who, by His grace and His grace alone, had their eyes open to see His beauty, who were strengthened by His Spirit to surrender, who depended upon His power to follow and make Him known, they will be brought into the land of never-ending peace under the rule of the final judge who will rule in righteousness and truth and injustice will be no more. We need not fear because Hebrews 7.25 says that this priest, this judge, He ever lives to make intercession for us. He will never die again. He will forever deliver his people from the oppression of the enemy. This section of the book of Judges teaches us that God uses weak people to accomplish great purposes so that he receives all glory and his enemies receive great shame. All glory be to Christ.